<laughs> Should we start with like introductions or something? Yeah, let's start with introductions. Tell me about you. <laughs> Welcome to the interview. How are you? I'm doing What's, well. Who are you? Um, I'm Fiona. Um, Fiona Chen. I'm a second year PhD student in the business economics program at Harvard. Um, and I did my undergrad at MIT in math and economics with Kiara. <laughs> Indeed, we did do some econ together for sure. Also, a lot of student government yes, stuff together. Yes, yes. <laughs> Back in the day. Back in the day. <laughs> in my personal prime. <laughs> now it's solving downhill. <laughs> what? <laughs> I feel like that's definitely not no, true. It's, it's not true. That's true. I feel like there's nothing that's more like rock bottom than <laughs> That's so true. You're so real. I'm so glad you feel that way. Sometimes I feel like now I go about my life and I like, whenever I find a fellow MIT graduate, I'm like, did you like it? Like desperately, desperately hoping that they'll say no so I can be like, me, me. But always, like 95% of the time they're like, yes, I loved it. And I just sit there like stewing in, in self-hatred. Like, what did I do wrong? I mean, I feel like, I feel like it's like a love-hate relationship type of thing where it's like, because you got through so much pain you like I or at least for me it's like it was so painful but I feel like I grew so much that I have to love the fact that I grew so much the masochism yeah (laughs) but I am very glad that I'm done with it fair but there was this one time did you go to that Bo Burnham talk Bo Burnham Mm -mm. came I remember that but I didn't go okay that was like a pivotal moment for me in my MIT experience. Really? Because, yeah, he came to MIT, and I first of all, I had no idea who he was, um, <laughs> but I just showed up to this lecture hall, and oh, at nice. some point, he was saying that there's like this sick obsession with self-inflicted pain in in mm. the form of like pushing yourself really really hard yeah and that people play it off as if you're suffering but really internally you're like i am suffering but it is all in the name of succeeding i definitely feel like that's very true of mit i think one thing that i thought was kind of interesting though is just like how this differs across universities like for example i feel like a lot of west coast universities like stanford for example have the opposite issue where like they're so committed to the image that they're like chill and happy all the time oh, so that true. like yeah like I feel like at MIT maybe like imposter syndrome is like the more big like mental health issue that people face whereas like at Stanford it's more like duck syndrome because everybody's like duck wants to syndrome. yeah have you heard that phrase no before? I haven't oh wait okay wait wow and um, so I guess the idea behind it is just like that everybody is like a duck in the sense that above water it looks like you're floating very happily but then below water you're kicking very hard to stay oh, afloat um but you only really see what's above water wow ducks must have it so hard <laughs> Suddenly, I like... there's a whole syndrome there's, like, there's a whole syndrome named after it i know <laughs> poor guys yeah this whole time i've just seen them as like placid creatures yeah. meanwhile they're like fighting for their lives yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, that's our human interpretation. I, guess so. <laughs> I don't actually know if they're fighting. Yeah, I don't know. That's like which one is less bad across yeah. Stanford and MIT. Like, I I mean, at MIT, it was like you wouldn't see people out throwing a Frisbee or the only yeah. time you would see people throwing a Frisbee was like the day where all the people who were potentially going to come to MIT CPW yeah, um, yeah, yeah. were there and they were like, no, we have fun. Yeah, MIT yeah, were like, yeah. We swear we have fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I'm glad that I went through it still though like I feel like I needed like some time in my life where I was really just like pushing myself as hard as I could push and mm-hmm. I feel as though like probably after that like everything seems 
significantly easier in comparison. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sets the bar Im- impossibly high yeah. in terms of difficulty. Yeah. But then do you think that there's, like, do you think that you'll ever crave building in terms of how challenged you are mm. again in your life? I think maybe I'm better at, like, figuring out what level of challenge I need to make myself happy without burning myself out at this yeah. point. Like, I think at MIT was probably, like, too intense. But, mm-hmm. like, I, I feel like I'm at a level at this point in my life where it's, like, I'm still pushing myself very hard. But I'm also spending a lot of time, like, making dumplings or, like, hanging out with my friends. And, like, I'm sleeping a lot more. And just, like, generally speaking, a lot happier. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that you are good at making external sources of challenge for yourself Mm. I guess you're still in school so maybe you don't necessarily you're not necessarily facing that but I have personally really struggled after four years five years of MIT where everything was just like forced down my throat yeah to now produce those sources of validation for myself yeah yeah that's a super fair question um I think I still am in school which makes it easier but I think a lot of doing a PhD is about figuring out how to do that for yourself just because a lot of your research is so self-directed and I think I'm becoming a lot better at that I think when I first started the PhD I was like pretty scared about transitioning to like just doing my own research because I was scared of like oh how am I going to do when I don't have external structure imposed upon me and I just have to like set up my own schedule I have to like figure out my own ideas I have to and obviously I have advisors and like classmates and stuff but like a lot of it is more self-directed um and I it's definitely been a learning process but I think I'm getting better at that both in terms of my work as well as like things I do outside of school um I had mentioned to you that I've been getting into like a lot of random hobbies yes tell (laughs) me about them yeah when I talked to you last like the main thing I was like super into which I'm definitely so into is like house music um yes I have this vision of like myself becoming a big DJ at some point (laughs) wait actually what would your DJ name be oh my gosh so my friends um call me jokingly dj fee so because like fee is like my nickname and it's also a greek letter and we're nerdy Um, yeah um i think if i actually were to become a dj i wouldn't actually have a nerdy name no (laughs) no i don't think so well i I think with something like dj fee most people won't yeah most people wouldn't associate it with yeah that's true that's true like i named my dog luna because in spanish it means moon and i was like moon is like astrophysics um it's yeah. in space but anyway. that's very cute though so i think that's more cute than it is nerdy i think naming fair. yourself after a geek letter might be too nerdy <laughs> dj fee though is yeah. okay so so you have this vision of you becoming a a, a dj <laughs> where was it like you had a dream and you were like you know wait wiki <laughs> like where did this vision come from yeah where did the vision come from yeah so I mean growing up I've always been really into music and so like for example I like have played piano since I was four there was like a period in which I like thought I could do it professionally and like go to college at like a music school and stuff and I also like sang and played flute and like played guitar when I was growing up so mm-hmm. I've always just like really loved music like that was always my like kind of thing um in college, I, like, whenever I had sort of parties and stuff with my friends, I would kind of DJ informally um, and just, like, make a Spotify playlist and, like, control the music and stuff. And, like, I really like that because I feel like 
it determines the vibe of the social setting, you know? Like, it, I feel like when you're in control of the music, you kind of, you have, you can kind of push the party in different directions Definitely. where it's like, do we want this to be like a sort of like chill, like we're chatting and like, just like relaxing type of thing? Or do we want like everybody to be like super hype, you know? Um, and so I, I feel like that was the thing that I started doing in college a lot. And also like, I think just gener- more generally speaking, I've noticed that like my mood um, is very responsive to the music that I listen to. And I think that's like conceptually quite interesting to me mm. where it's like, if I'm listening to something upbeat, then I'll feel more upbeat. If I listen to something sad, I feel more sad. Yeah. Like maybe that's like a pretty trivially obvious statement, but like yeah. it, it is something that I find like super interesting. And then um, maybe the biggest trigger was like this past summer, I went to Berlin for the first time. And I just thought that like the music scene there was super, super cool. Um, I became really obsessed with this one woman. Um, uh, you, you know Peggy Goo? I don't. Okay, she's like this Korean DJ and she lives in Berlin. And so I was like, I want to be Peggy. <laughs> so, yeah, that was my DJ story. <laughs> I think, yeah, no, I mean, okay, on your statement that sad music makes you sad and, and happy music makes you happy, I think, yeah, it sounds trivial because everyone feels that way. But at yeah. the same time, one, like, I don't think everyone taps into that yeah and yeah. really utilizes it like yeah I all the time if I feel like I'm just on the brink of accessing sadness yeah yeah and I yeah. really need the the, the push the then push. I, you play that song and boom like I'm, yes. I'm sobbing in the car yeah and, yeah um, yeah and same with happiness and so, yeah yeah and then two I think it is like intellectually or conceptually like what what is music like, yeah, what is yeah. this thing that we have that can help us yeah. access our emotions and that also like arose in so many different cultures yeah, across yeah. the world at the same time yeah is it like I don't know is what what is it like yeah is it yeah. spiritual does it have a purpose is the purpose to access emotion is the purpose to bring us together I mean maybe yeah it could be multifunctional yeah I think you're touching on a lot of really interesting things I mean I definitely like am not like a music expert in the more like historical cultural sense but I feel like my feeling from my own life is that like music is all of those above all of the above and I feel like the part about bringing people together is maybe the part that resonates with me the Mm -hmm. most just because like a lot of it in my life has been about like oh these social events where like um everybody feels happy together because you are playing like really cool music and that like makes people just like feel good about themselves and stuff like that um yeah and I think that that's like a really big part of it or like even if like I growing up for example I played in like a concert band when I played flute and like that was like kind of my one of my big sources of like friendship uh was just like other people who played music as well um and I think that that's also just like a nice way to create bonds yeah I think the thing you were saying about um people maybe like not tapping into things enough was also quite interesting um just because I so I a lot of my econ research is in behavioral economics so I think about like psych stuff a lot and I feel like people often have this sense that like your mood or your emotions are something that control you rather than vice versa and I think there is some extent to which that's true but I feel like it over the past like few years or so like it that interpretation of your psychology just felt very dissatisfying to me because it felt as though like it felt as though we should be able to have more agency over our own lives and 
things like that and I feel like the music example is one example of Mm -hmm. like how you can't have a lot more agency than people often tell themselves about Mm -hmm. like the way that they think and feel yeah definitely I think that most people think that emotions are like an external thing that happens to you yeah is done unto you as opposed to something that you craft or shape or yeah 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 uh so where do you ultimately land on that in terms of like the spectrum of like can you control your emotions versus I think my view on this has changed quite a lot over time I think I used to feel a lot more as though like your emotions just control you and like there's not that much you can do about them a lot of the time but and I still think that is true to a large extent but I feel like I think I'm a lot more on the side now of like if you're good at for example like setting boundaries for yourself or like keeping things in perspective or like identifying what it is about different people or different scenarios or social settings etc that like make you upset then Mm. you're way more in control of like Mm. your mood than than people might think I, I feel like I have this thing that happens to me very often where like a lot of people are always like oh my gosh Fiona like how are you so happy all the time basically and I don't know like I I I think it it is a lot of like what we're talking about where it's like if you're sort of in tune with like the way that you think about things then you have a lot more power than you might anticipate yeah that's interesting I think I think a lot about your ability to shape the emotion in the moment and as opposed to your ability to shape the environment so that your emotions Mm -hmm. are more conducive to yeah or that you are more conducive to the environment or or the environment is rather more conducive to you yeah yeah you're just setting yourself up for success yeah yeah i think on the former of like being able to shape your emotion in the moment i i do think that you have actually a lot of agency Mm, even in that yeah like i think as long as you are aware of the emotion then you won't suffer yes. and I'll define suffering as having this conflict between what you want to be feeling and what you are feeling yeah I think suffering is different than pain pain maybe is sadness or anger or frustration and all of those emotions you're going to feel in yeah. your life and that's fine that's okay yeah as long as you welcome them in you're aware of them you notice them and you let them flow. Yeah, yeah. But people suffer when they try to remove them, you know, strip themselves of of those of that pain, of those right, negative emotions. Right, right. And so I think that you can at least drive your emotions insofar that you can prevent yourself from suffering by not yeah. trying to fight them. Yeah. Um but and then on the on the latter point about shaping your environment, I think about um sort of in terms of your environment how you balance shaping your environment to work for you and shaping yourself to work for your environment mm, and when yeah. you sort of give up and say like this environment isn't just it's just not for me yeah and I therefore need to change it versus yeah you just keep pushing yourself to say like, yeah come on I can I can be better in this environment. yeah that's a really interesting question I do think that the former thing you're talking about about like being able to adapt to different environments is super important Mm. and I think that that's also a skill that is developable in the way that you've sort of talked about like identifying forms of suffering and like being able to feel your emotions but maybe not like let them take over you etc um but yeah I think maybe that is another way in which I feel like I've at least personally grown since 
leaving MIT is just mm. like the sort of adaptability component of things. Mm. Interesting. So why EDM? I mean, and we talked about music more generally, more yeah. broadly, but but why EDM? Yeah. Did, did, uh, does that interest you? Yeah. Um, well, so I guess I, I actually like quite like most forms of music. Like I also really like hip hop and R&B. Mm. Um, I like house music a lot more than EDM. I think oh, EDM. sorry. <laughs> I just I think I, I'm not super into pop music and yeah. EDM I think is a lot more adjacent to pop than mm. um, what I usually like what is the difference between EDM and house music I think a lot of people <laughs> conflate the two including myself yeah yeah um I think I think a lot of it is kind of like the uh, a lot of it is the beat so like house music has like a clear like for um beat rhythm underlying it um and a lot of it is also kind of like um the types of melodies that are in it so edm is usually like more like pop melodies Mm -hmm. whereas like house music i feel like is is not as much pop if that makes sense i see yeah okay very cool yeah (laughs) i listened to it when or i listened to house music although now it might have been edm I'll have to disentangle it too, <laughs> like when I when I work out. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I find that it just, I don't know. It's like almost a spiritual experience. Yeah. I just remove myself from my body and yeah, like yeah. with the music. And yeah. I, mean, I know that's why, it is like always the basis of, of uh, festivals and yeah, yeah. People being on mushrooms and yeah. listening to, to house music. But I wonder what it like what it is about that propelling you forward or that yeah. beat that makes you like feel almost spiritually yeah, yeah. detached from your body. Yeah, no, I feel like it's so interesting that you bring that up because I think that a lot of another like sort of thing that I started doing last year, which also like propelled me being into house music was just that I also listened to it a lot while working out mm-hmm. like um I would just like go on a run and put on like a party mix on like SoundCloud or something and just like run to that um I think a lot of it is the beat I think a lot of it is probably just like a certain level of repetitiveness mm-hmm. in the melody that makes it so that it's easier to kind of like mm-hmm. like lose yourself to the music as opposed to like listening to individual words for example which often happens when you're like listening to something with like like I, with lyrics um yeah. my my friend and I t- often talk about how like there are some people who are like lyrics people versus some people who are like vibes people with <laughs> music and um I feel like for a lot of like lyrics people or like more lyric songs um by that I mean like songs where like uh maybe the primary appeal of them is like the poetry of the lyrics themselves as opposed to like um the melody or the vibe of the song um like maybe it's a little bit harder to like lose yourself in the way that you would when you're dancing or you're working out to those yeah yeah I think that's a really good way of saying it yeah (laughs) I feel like when something has a good beat then like you feel as though there's something that's propelling you forward Mm. and I think that's probably why like a lot of people really like dancing to house music for example Mm -hmm. um is just that like there's like a very clear sort of like this is what's propelling me like through like my day or just like on the dance floor yeah um yeah I don't know. I guess another part of it was just that, like, one of my closest friends in my program is super into house music, and so I've been talking to him about it a lot, yeah. and it's, like, kind of fun to have something to bond with someone over. Yeah. yeah. Do you guys talk about talk about it by just listening to it and talking about what, what resonates, what scratches the parts of your brain, and, and you enjoy it, or do you actually talk about, like, the history of it and the 
I don't know more mostly the, the mu- mostly the music part of it I've done a little bit of reading about the history of it mm-hmm. which I think is also super interesting um like I think it originated from like some combinations of like disco plus like soul plus electronic mm. music like kind of just getting mushed together mm. um and so like that i thought was like super cool <laughs> super cool yeah pause let me eat a ginger chew oh my gosh do you want one? Yeah. yes i love ginger chews here that's snack time i just bought a bag of ginger candy yesterday and i'm like almost the ginger yeah i saw that from far and i was like mm. <laughs> i love ginger <laughs> Ginger is like, it does something to my brain. Yeah. It wakes me up. No, I feel that so much. It makes me feel so yeah, good. I'm so good. Mm. I have to buy these later. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Mm. Okay, so back to it, back to it. So I was I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your work with David Otter at MIT. Oops, sorry. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's a little bit hard to go to MIT without like being inundated with questions about like the effects of technology yeah. um on the world and so i think being in the econ department like one of the natural questions that arises is just like what is the effect of technological innovation on the labor market so mm-hmm. for example like um if we have a lot of these like very powerful ai tools um like chat or another example is like github copilot is an ai tool that's um software engineer that was just released for software engineers to use Mm. like are these things that will be hurting people's ability to get good jobs in the future and to earn a living wage Mm. um so i had worked uh quite a bit with david otter when i was an undergrad on this he's like kind of like the like big ai um automation expert in econ um and maybe sort of like to summarize like the sort of headline results which oftentimes to people who are not in econ academic research are a little bit counterintuitive is just that like um it's a little bit different from the way that people in popular discourse talk about it in the sense of like it seems quite unlikely based off of current academic research that like in the foreseeable future like all of our jobs are going to be automated or anything like that like we will almost certainly still have a lot of work Hmm. available for people i think the main thing to be concerned about is just like the way in which the nature of work is changing and who it disproportionately helps versus disproportionately hurts um and so the way that people usually think about this is that technology has a sort of bifurcated effect on the labor market in which um it's generally uh more hurtful for people who are like kind of in the middle of this sort of like education income distribution because those are the jobs that are easier to automate a lot of the time whereas like for example if you think of yourself as like if you're a doctor and there are advances in like medical research technologies like that is something that will be helpful for you because then you can do more of your research work more of like your surgical work etc or if you are doing some sort of like i don't know some sort of service industry job in which like people like the human interaction then like that's also something that's like probably not going to be automated anytime Mm. soon but like if you're an accountant for example or you're doing something where like the task is very routine um then that is something that like maybe you should that maybe people should be a little bit more concerned about and then the next question that arises is just like if those are the jobs that are um more susceptible to automation um where we could see like wage declines or unemployment etc then what sort of interventions do we need to develop to make sure that those people are properly supported? 
Hmm. Interesting. So is it, if those jobs are going to be replaced by AI, is it that we redirect those people elsewhere? And if we redirect them elsewhere, does it, is it necessarily the case that the places where we redirect them are going to be more advanced yeah, yeah. jobs or jobs that require more advanced skills and so is it a question of education yeah. or is it that they could be redirected to just other jobs that don't necessarily require skills that they ha- you know haven't already attained yeah 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 so I think that a lot of it will be about redirecting and a lot of the redirecting process is about education mm-hmm. um so like for example um I think there's a lot of research work and policy work on job retraining programs as one example um I I think there are a lot of economists who are very into the idea of doing more vocational training from early on, as opposed to like having colleges just solely be about like getting a general liberal arts education. Um, I I don't know if I personally know like the best path forward. Like mm-hmm. at a minimum, it does seem like maybe like people need uh more training in in skill sets that seem less susceptible to automation, or mm-hmm. like if they do end up losing their jobs, then like there are like the relevant social safety nets and job retraining programs such that they can like get redirected appropriately um i guess the um other side of the argument is just that like even in these situations like for example with github copilot one of the big ideas is that like the more routine part of software engineering is getting automated but then that frees up your time and your energy so that you can do more of the high level creative thinking right and so maybe that's actually something that's like only beneficial for the people who are working in these areas. Right. Yeah. yeah, I remember, so I read through some of his papers, David Otter's papers, and yeah. work the future papers, and it seemed like he broke down the, the his argument as to why more automated technologies aren't necessarily going to replace jobs into three uh, sub-arguments. Yeah. And so sort of the first argument that he makes there is that you have increased productivity on, a, on an individual job level. Yeah. Like you have doctors who now you know, can use their time not to make diagnoses that they have technology making now, but rather to to research or do other things. Um, And then the second is that you have overall a higher income of society, which sort of drives demand because people want new cars and new houses. And that demand requires workers to, to, to actually create the products to fill that demand. Yeah. And then the third is that you have... Um, you know, new industries that are being spun up at a high yeah. level because of this technological advancement. So, you know, dozens of years ago, we didn't have solar jobs and, and, and computer industry uh, and, and television networks and all these things. Yeah. Um, and so the idea is that, you know, in, in a couple of years, as technology advances, and then in dozens of years and even centuries, you will continue to have more industries being spun up. Yeah. <clears throat> I think that that definitely makes me hopeful when I see yeah, a, a, yeah. <laughs> a product like ChatGPT that we're not yeah. just all going to be replaced. Yeah. <laughs> you know, with with something like ChatGPT, what are... I don't know, have you used it, first of all? Um, I've played with it a little bit, but not actually a ton. Okay, so I, I, I've actually been using it a good amount, and mm-hmm. I've found that you definitely have to give it very specific instructions. Yes, yes. Um, and I tend to iterate on what I'm telling it yeah um but you know the more the more specific instructions that you give it it can actually produce some really good work like if you you give it your profile or say like you know my name is Kiara Wanchuk can you look me up and find the style in which I write and produce something on this topic in that style yeah it can do it um, yeah yeah which is crazy yeah so (laughs) 
obviously I think it's a very helpful tool and it's yeah, really yeah. going to make our society more productive and hopefully for all the reasons that we just mentioned isn't necessarily going to replace jobs but actually produce you know re- redirect people and, yeah. and create new opportunities for jobs but are there other ethical implications that aren't necessarily job related that mm. have been sort of percolating in your mind yeah um, yeah since, since the, the the rise of chat gpt yeah yeah no that's a super fair question I guess it does sort of make the nature of a lot of work quite different because um, I, I don't know exactly how to say this, but I feel like um, maybe I'll kind of frame this in terms of an example. Um, I, I saw this tweet the other day where this girl was basically saying like, oh, I saw a piece of art and I felt like I really liked the piece of art mm. and I wanted to support the artist. And then I found out it was AI generated. Yeah, And I I feel like maybe that is a little bit scary in the sense of like, um, I, I feel like it makes you really question like what exactly it is that like makes art or certain things that these sorts of creative professions really special. Yeah. Um, like I, I feel like there are a lot of forms of work that have this very individual personal side of things like art, for example, and people are really attracted to that. And if you just have everything like written by AI or just like generated by AI, et cetera, that removes a lot of it. Yeah. But that's hard because AI is built upon people, Existing. right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, it's not like it just, you know, came yeah. out of a void, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. No, that's super fair. And I don't know. I, I mean, I think when I think about something like art with this example, I think more about the emotions that it, that it Evo- induces yeah, and evokes yeah. as opposed to, necessarily the artist that it yep. came from no that's super fair that's super fair but it is but it is a really fair point i mean what is it it does call into question like what is the value of individuals work or like what what can you provide now if this yeah. ai can do it instead yeah right? yeah um yeah i guess different people kind of resonate with art for different reasons and i think that's totally a fair way to relate to it um i guess i don't really know where i personally am on the spectrum of things i quite like the more personal side of things and like being able to hear like oh this was my story behind my painting and how i came to the process etc yeah um yeah when you talk about chat gpt do you use the word it it does this and it does that. I do use the word it. Okay. What do you use? I normally use it, but yeah. I have found that I have slipped at least like a few times, too many times, where I've used the word she. That's so interesting. Yeah. yeah. Like she wrote this. She wrote this. That's really interesting. It's depressing. Yeah. Especially like <laughs> as someone who, I, you know, I would qualify myself most certainly as a feminist and also yeah, as someone yeah. who is like... I don't know, always been in very aware of of gender and inequity. And yeah, yeah. I've always or thought I guess of myself why, as, yeah. yeah, why do you feel like that's not feminist to call chat GPT by she? Because it's an assistant. Because it's someone who is... Oh, I see. I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. it's someone who... I mean, Alexa is all... Uh, Siri, Alexa, mm. they're all women. yeah. At least by default, obviously you can change the voice or whatever, saying. but they're all women. And now ChatGPT wasn't assigned a gender, and I assigned it a gender. That's really interesting. Oh, I actually didn't even think about it from the assistant perspective. I had maybe even thought of it in terms of like a very like positive light, in which mm. I was like, "Wow, what a brilliant technology that mm. is like far exceeding what people 
thought would be possible at mm. this point in time. Like, cool. That's a positive spin <laughs> on it. Definitely. But it's there to serve you, right? Yeah. Like you're, you're the one directing it at the end of the day. That's fair. That's fair. So anyway, <laughs> just something, something that's interesting. Something yeah, to, yeah. I, I think that I wonder if there are going to be studies of, you know, yeah. what people assign it in terms of yeah, gender, I would yeah. assume. That's really interesting. I guess that maybe one more thing I'll say about ChatGPT is that like, I think it's like very cool um, and can be very helpful for a lot of writing and stuff. But I, I do feel like even with how cool and powerful it is, it seems like it's relatively limited in terms of like a lot of practical um, applications. There is this study that was um, released a few days or maybe a few weeks ago about basically like, they were trying to look at how well ChatGPT performed in law school classes basically. And so they, I think randomly uh, submitted either real essays written by real law students versus like ChatGPT written essays. And mm -hmm. I think like, and also had ChatGPT like um, do a few exams and other forms of evaluation that law school students had to do. Mm. And I think they had found that, like, ChatGPT got, like, a C-minus in the class. Really? Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Well, that gives me some hope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, our yeah. minds aren't completely useless. Yeah. Compared to AI. Um, wait, one question I did want to ask you. Yes. With our minimal time left was, what is the line for you for an AI having consciousness? Have you seen, like, oh my Ex gosh. Machina? Yeah, like, all of this, like, singularity, stuff yeah. like that. Oh, my gosh. I don't know how how to think about it. I feel like people are always a little bit scared of robots taking over. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know if I know enough to be able to make a prediction on when that would happen, if it would happen. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's more of, like, a personal view on on what what is the point at which something is conscious. Like, mm. you're never going to be inside of something and know whether I it is see. feeling emotion or not and yeah, so yeah. is it that if if we perceive that it's feeling emotion then it's feeling emotion is it like free will is that what makes something yeah, conscious yeah yeah um yeah i don't know this is this is a very meta question um i don't know if i thought that deeply about this i guess it seems as though like if some agent has free will that almost certainly seems like it should pass the bar for consciousness mm. but like maybe there's something even lower than that i'm not really sure i guess mm. there's been some research about like plants and consciousness for example mm. but i feel as though people don't generally think of plants as having free will but they say yeah. that plants have the ability to like feel pain or right. other emotions um i think they do yeah, yeah, yeah. They, maybe they do. Um, there are studies that show that if you have like two gardens side by side, yeah, and all in the exact same condition, both in the exact same conditions, but you whisper to one of them every morning, yeah, and talk to them and tell them about you know your woes and your your stories, yeah, yeah. they grow faster. Interesting, interesting. Hmm. Well, uh, food for thought. Food for something thought. Something that. <laughs> I think that, you know, MIT students most certainly is one of the many questions that MIT students should be thinking about. And oh, yeah. Because they're going to be the ones who are going to be shaping this. Absolutely. So. Okay, Fiona. Well, we are out of time, but I want to thank you so much for hanging out with me. And to anyone who is listening, this is my first podcast. So hopefully there will be more um, I'm going to put my contact information 
somewhere on the place where this podcast is and you should message me um, if you have any ideas of people who I should talk to next. Thanks so much. Bye. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.